If you would get out your copies of God's word and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. We'll be looking at chapter 1. And we'll be looking at just three verses today. Verses 3 through 6. I guess that's four verses if you count three. But Verses 3 through 6 of this wonderful letter. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this word that you have delivered to us that we can read here this morning. Lord, I pray that this would be something that we would be able to see clearly, have our minds and hearts open to understand and obey what you have for us here today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whenever you greet someone here in our pious South and we say, how are you doing? Though the approved Christian answer is, well, I'm blessed. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that particular announcement. It's true. We are blessed, even no matter what's going on with us. That's the case. But I think we tend to throw that out too flippantly. I tend to think that we don't really comprehend how much we have been blessed by God. Particularly because we don't fully comprehend how little we deserve to be blessed by God. And that's what this first chapter is about here in Ephesians. Really, what the book is about, at least the first half, about the things that the Lord has accomplished for us. Now, this first chapter, really the first 14 verses, as every commentary will tell you, is that this is all one single sentence in Greek that Paul is writing. It's not a run-on sentence, it's a proper one. He's just all containing these things in one thought. And scholars have spent thousands of pages trying to find what is the structure for this particular thing. And I will not go into detail of all those things, because I found one that I like the best, and usually that means it's right. So, I'm just kidding. Don't follow your hearts. Your hearts are desperately wicked. But I think this structure makes sense, in that it is ordered by what each member of the Trinity does for us. So if we look in this section that we're going to chew on today, which is verses 3 through 6, we see what the Father has done for us. And that's why he starts out, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, what he's doing, how he's done that. He's chose us in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us to adoption. Those are the things that the Father does. And then if we look into verses 7 through 10, 11, we'll see what the Son 
has done for us. Namely, that he's purchased redemption for us. He's the one who went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, lived the life that was perfectly obedient so that we could have a fully righteous record. That's the work of the Son. And then as we get into verse 13, excuse me, so Christ is from 7 to uh, 12, in verses 13 and 14, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. That he is sealing us and is a mark of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit. So all three members of the Trinity are working together for your salvation. Think about that. Your salvation was not purchased because the Father was really angry at you, but the Son managed to figure out how to calm him down. Wasn't the case. It wasn't the Father and the Son were united on something, but they had to jostle the Holy Spirit to go down there and be with you, to redeem you, to hang out with you all the time. All three members of the Trinity are completely united in this goal of redeeming you. We could just go home right now. We won't. I still got more to say. But we could chew on that forever. Does that not change how you would answer the term, I am blessed? The entire Trinity has been working to save me. Shows how much work it needs to be done to save us. But that's the structure that we're looking at. So what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look and drill down into what each member of the Trinity is doing for you. And today, we're going to focus on the Father. So let's jump in. Here in verse 3. Paul is, understandably, starting with praise, considering what he's about to say. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, tying Jesus to the Father, showing that he's divine. But who has blessed us in Christ. So again, Christ is pivotal to all of this. He's blessing us through Jesus and the work that he has done with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is something we need to think more about in America. A lot of churches want to talk about the blessings that God gives and restrict that to purely physical ones. See, a lot of preachers on TV where it's like the Lord's seemingly only goal is to make sure you have a nice car and a nice house and a comfortable retirement. That's not what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. Does he bless us physically? Absolutely. Everything that you have is a gift from God, including your house, your car, and everything else. But the focus that, we, that the Lord has been lavishly blessing on is the spiritual blessings. We see the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. Freedom from guilt from our sin. These are spiritual blessings that he gives to us. Uh, these are in the heavenly places. This is from this realm of heaven. But, as one commentator noted, while these blessings are in heaven, we're enjoying them now. Not in fullness. One day we will experience perfect peace, completely uninterrupted by our own sin. One day we will experience perfect joy, uninterrupted by the circumstances of this world. But we get to taste of that fruit now. And if we're not tasting of it, it might be perhaps is because we're not trusting in what the Lord has done. I'm not saying there aren't times of lowness. That happens. When we're going through the death of a family member, that's tough. The Lord doesn't outlaw sadness and grief. 
But these spiritual blessings are always present with us, even in our darkest of times, because they have been granted to us by God, guaranteed by his spirit. So this is Paul's introduction, the spiritual blessings that he's about to unfold over these next few verses. And he gets into verses four and five and talks about the blessing that is unique to the father. And that is him choosing you for salvation from before the foundation of the world. Now, he has a thing as to why he's doing that. We're going to go back to talking about choosing and predestination. We'll get there. But for the moment, I want us to take a look and notice to why. Why is he saving us? Is it because God was lonely and needed more people in heaven? No. Is it because God is a narcissist and he needs people to worship him? No. The Lord doesn't need anything. This is a gift that he is giving to us. And he's doing it so that we may be holy and blameless before him in love. Different translations split that sentence in different spots. Remember, this whole passage is one sentence. It's hard to render that in English, so they'll break it up in various parts. And, I, and after studying on this, it looks like that the in love is tied to being holy and blameless. The Lord is setting us apart from the world and its sin. Freeing us from those chains, as we just sang earlier bringing us out from that, and then transforming us. Not just separating us out and leaving us in that way, but making us so that we are blameless through the work that what Christ has done. But that it's always being done when we, in our holy and blamelessness, that we never forget our love and love to other people in the way that we relate to each other. That's why he's done this. So what is it that he's done? Choosing us from before the foundation of the world and predestining us for adoption to himself. How does this work? This is a theme of the Lord choosing his people. It's something that we see all through the scriptures. We're going to do a little bit of a sword drill today. So get your Bibles out and get your fingers ready to flip as we're going to be looking at several different passages here in a moment. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 7. As we see how the Lord chooses his people all through redemptive history. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, we're going to find out how and why the Lord chooses his people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. It says, he's speaking to the people of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So why? Because he loved them. That's as much an answer as we get. He loves his people and he keeps his promises to those that he loves. That's why he chose Israel. And this has been done 
prior to the world existing. If we'll look at in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, we'll see that the plan for redemption to make us his people was also thought of before the foundation of the world. Before anything else was created, it was decreed that Jesus would die for our sins. Here we're kind of coming into the middle of Peter's thought here in verse 27 of Acts chapter 4. He says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus going to the cross. The plan from all of eternity to redeem his people. One more passage. As we look into the final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, we, in verse 8, we hear about that book of life. As no doubt many of you grew up hearing, saying, has your name been written in the book of life? Well, it turns out right here in verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. That's the, the false beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Here the Lord has chosen all of his people, even down to the names, the individuals, wrote them down before they were even created. This is the consistent witness of the rest of Scripture. Now we could look and say, it's like, well, why is it that he is writing down those names? Is it because some folks just turned out to be a little bit better than their neighbors? That's not what we see in 2 Timothy 1.9. It speaks of Jesus who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, again, before the ages began. Choosing not based on what we've done. Finally, in a very famous text, we'll see in Romans chapter 9, this same concept pulled out. As we find why it is that we have been chosen, it's not from anything that we did. In Romans 9, starting in verse 14, It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Just like we saw in Ephesians. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. Oops, I'm reading the wrong section. I'm supposed to be in Romans 9, not 8. That's a great passage too. But in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, I get distracted. It's easy to do. Romans 9, 14, just making sure you're paying attention. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the passage that we see all of scripture. The Lord makes the choice and it's not dependent on anything that we do. Now, does that mean that there is no real call to repentance? There is no real call for faith. Absolutely not. And as we see, we can see that in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, when the Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And in Acts 16, 31, they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They don't say, well, the Lord's called you and elected you. Just wait. He'll drag you into heaven at some point. That's not what Paul and Silas say. There's a real call to repentance. Again, next chapter over, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Here Paul is preaching, and he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a real call to repentance here what we see in the scriptures. As we look into another famous passage in John chapter 6, verses 37. Usually people quote the last half of this verse. It says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is absolutely true. That's right there in the scriptures. Whoever comes to Christ will be found by him. But how do people seek? This is the question we have to ask. Go ahead and stay in John here. I'll give you a break from your flipping around. But in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, which is quoting from the Psalms, it says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We see a few chapters later in Romans 6 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do we pull these two things together? Both these things are true. Anyone who wishes to come to me can come and I will in no wise cast them out. But it says in Romans, no one seeks No one comes. All have been turned aside. How do we reconcile this? Well, we can hear it right from Jesus. If we just back up a little bit. In John 6, verse 35 and following, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, as the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And it goes on, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that comes. And they said, is this not Jesus, the mother of Joseph? How can he say I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The word draws that's used there is the same idea of pulling a net in. The Lord draws those that he has chosen to come to him. We weren't seeking the son, but as Luke 19.10 tells us, it was the son of man who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you now see what a blessing this is? Left in our natural state, we would never seek God. Would want to. Our nature is fallen and is against God. In fact, one preacher put it very provocatively and said if anyone was given the chance to come out of hell and be given the opportunity to repent and put their faith in God right then and there and be entered into heaven that man would spit in the face of God and jump back into hell. This is how opposed humanity is to God. That's why Ephesians can accurately say in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need a resurrection. So the Father comes and chooses, not based on anything that you've done, Pure grace captures your heart and holds it. Our hearts were not diamonds in the rough that needed a little bit of sanding and a little bit of polishing to reach our full potential. No, our heart of stone needed to be removed and given a heart of flesh. All things needed to be made new. The old has passed away. We need a new creation, a new heart. That's why people have faith. It's a gift, as we'll see in Ephesians 2 when we get there. The reason why we believe is not because we're smarter than other people or better than other people. Because God reached down and touched your heart and said, let there be light. So how are we supposed to react to all that? That's what we have in verse 4, as we've already covered. He's resurrected us not to so that we can enjoy the blessings of heaven, necessarily. That's part of it. But to be holy and blameless before him. To offer up as a sacrifice of praise to him as he transforms us from death to life. And he continues in verse 5. As he continues more blessings. That he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. Other trans- I love the ESV, but this is the one spot where I think the ESV could have done a lot better. Other translations pull out what is there in the Greek, that this is according to the good pleasure of his will. This is something that the Father has not done for you reluctantly. Holding his nose and trying to go down there and see if he can do something with you. This is out of the good pleasure of God. Delighting to do this. 
Grace. Grace. As we covered last week, predestining us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We get too afraid of the word predestination. All it means is that your destination has been set beforehand. We do predestination every time we turn on our GPS. This is a chance for today. Here is where we're going. I had one seminary professor describe it like this. It's like being on top of one mountaintop and seeing the other mountaintop. And in the valley, there's this really thick mist that you can't see into. And God is going to take you from this mountaintop to that mountaintop. How he's going to get you to there, that's the mystery of providence. Some of us are blessed to have the direct route, grew up in church, never knew a day in which you didn't love Jesus and have been transforming you since the age of five. If that's your testimony, praise God. Others, we had to, t- we had to go through the slough and the bog and the briar patch and finally put on the road right at the end. If that's your testimony, then praise God. He's not lost a single one. Those who have been predestined that God has given. And again, this is a gift. This isn't something you get to brag about. This isn't something because we're special. This is because God decided to show his grace. Why? I don't know. How do you explain why you fall in love with someone? God decided to love us. And then make sure that we come to him and bring us home as a son. Sharing in the sonship of God. That's what he promises. Now I understand that there are questions about this. I'm not going to pretend that I can answer every question here in one sermon. Certainly not one sermon that would get you to lunch. But if you have questions about this, nothing would throw me more than to walk you through this. I know this is a complicated thing. Uh, There are a lot of strong emotions around this particular concept. And I get that. I understand. I think that's the conversation we have for that is over a a nice warm cup of coffee and a donut. But I'm going to answer a couple questions that I know some have. And the question that we would have is, well, what about everybody else? Yes, it's wonderful. The Lord has chosen, brought us. What about those he hasn't? If he hasn't chosen them, they can't seek after him because they need him to transform his heart. What about those that are left? That seems unfair. Wouldn't you like to ask the Apostle Paul, why is it that if they need God's power to come to Christ, and if he doesn't give it to them, why does he still condemn them? Who can resist his will? Well, if you'd like to ask that question, Paul actually asked himself that question in Romans chapter 9, verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And the famous response in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? If the answer was, why is it that some people don't come to Christ? If the answer was, because they did not use the light that they had and they did not choose him properly, that would have been the perfect place to put that. In fact, this question wouldn't have even come up if that was the trajectory of Paul's thought. But clearly, the answer seems to be, why? God says, because I am God and you are not. 
It's a really humbling answer. But we could continue. And instead of necessarily the accusatory tone in which this question is usually read in, it's not just God is God and you are not, but who is this God? How was salvation accomplished? It was through the death of his son. And we're going to accuse that God of being unloving and unfair? How could we say that? This is the blessing that he's given to us. We're humbled by it. I think we also have to recognize is who we are. We skip back up in Romans chapter 9 into verse 13. It says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And what we usually get stuck on, as one commentator had talked about, we get stuck on the last phrase, Esau have I hated. But the phrase that should blow us away is Jacob have I loved. Jacob was a scoundrel, just like me. Lying and scheming and thieving person. Married two ladies and wasn't particularly nice to either one of them. Why would anybody love Jacob? Why would anybody love me? I'm a sinner. And a desperate one at that. That's why R.C. Sproul is able to say everyone gets either mercy or justice. No one gets injustice. It's not, why doesn't God save everyone? The question is, why does God save anybody? That's the mercy of the Lord. Now, I don't want to be glib about that. I'm not going to pretend that that isn't a hard thing to hear. Because even my own heart, that has been Presbyterian for a long time, still is humbled by that. But this is the point that God has made. And what I want to look and say from this is that because this is the case, because the Lord will never lose a single one that he has chosen, because he is going to be the one that awakens and draws people to himself, that means you can't write off anybody. No matter how far away they have wandered, No matter how far from those teachings that you've tried to train up your children on, no matter how far away they go, God can still draw them. You can't write off anybody. You can't look at anybody and say, ah, that person's not elect. Look how they're acting. Look at Paul. On the road to go persecute more Christians. A PhD in how he thinks. This is not some mindless zealot who was told one thing and went off and go kill a bunch of people. He was convicted on a mission that he thought was from God to go and pursue the church and persecute and kill it. And the Lord finds him, knocks him off of his horse and puts him right in the saddle of ministry and makes that transition in three days. That's your God. No one is beyond his reach. Not even you. That should embolden us for evangelism. I know when we used to evangelize when I was a child, my mom would take us to the beach. And we would go and evangelize there because people usually just sitting around, relaxing, whatever. 
And I know as a kid, I would look around and would think, it's like, okay, I think that person's going to be more open to the gospel than that guy. That guy looks scary. And what's that saying? It's putting it up on me, isn't it? That guy looks scary and smart. I'm not going to have anything to say to that guy. That's not the case. If that guy is one of the elect, I don't know who. I don't know who's elect and who's not, so I just go and evangelize everybody. Saves time. And whoever it is that God has for you to go and evangelize, guaranteed success, people. Might take a while. That's the blessing that we see here out of this. That's why this is a blessing. And that he can see us. And goes and collects us. And all we can say is, why? Why would he show us such grace? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Respond in joy. That's the point. I heard one story. And as the queen has passed, and lots of stories going around about the queen. Probably some of them even true. This one was pretty good. And that in the opening session of Parliament, the queen is supposed to process down the hall and open the session and tell the legislators to enact the will of the people. And it's a grand ceremony. And she's walking down these ancient halls lined with soldiers with their gleaming swords in hand. And as she approaches, they lift up the sword and whack the stone wall behind them, creating sparks as she goes by. It's a grand spectacle. And she's supposed to go up these gilded stairs that would lead up to the House of Lords. But as she got older, the stairs were a little bit more challenging, so they transitioned to the use of the elevator. Well, the first time that they did this, the person who was operating the elevator pushed the wrong button and took him down to the service level instead of the House of Lords. Well, there was the cleaning lady who happened to be standing in front of the elevator with her cart. And when the door opened, she, out of habit, pushed her cart in and pinned the queen against the back of the elevator door. And the door shut behind her, and she realized and looked up as to who she had just pinned against the wall. Now, the queen, graceful as ever, laughed deeply. And instead of telling the lift operator, take her back down to the service lane, she rode up with the cleaning lady to the House of Lords, And when the doors opened, she processed out in her grand robes with the cleaning lady in her uniform right beside her as she went to the House of Lords. Even better, every year, once a year, she invited that lady to high tea with her at the palace and invited her into his fellowship. That's what God does for us. The difference is, is he purposefully takes the elevator down to us and collects us and brings us to him. That's the joy we find in this passage. I know some would then say, it's like, well, what does this mean for me and my salvation? What if I'm not elect? How can I be sure that Christ will accept me if I come to him? Remember what we were saying? No one seeks after God except those who have been drawn. If you feel in your heart that conviction of sin, If you realize that you need a Savior to redeem you, that's the Father's work. He's signing the adoption papers. The Son has purchased you, and the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself. If this is something that you are feeling, then congratulations! 
You see the effect of the Lord's work. If you're not concerned about your salvation, that's the way you need to be worried. And if you say, well, I don't even feel that yet. I'm still questioning this whole thing. Give it time. If you're here and you're listening to this, the Lord's reaching out to you. He's doing something. Respond. Repent as he's commanded you to do. And then rejoice with the rest of us. People who have been redeemed from death. And praise him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are in awe of a gift like that. We who don't deserve anything even close to this, that you would grant us salvation and eternal life. I pray that this would not be an occasion for pride, as we can twist any good gift but I pray that this would be a boldness as we recognize who we are as sinners and see how glorious you are as a Savior. I pray that far from making us apathetic in evangelism, that this would make us very active to go and spread the gospel of a God who will save. And Lord, I pray that one day we're all gathered around that glorious throne and can see you face to face. May we get to praise you just like we have been here and glorify you for all of eternity. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.